Well, good morning. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 16 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to thank those of you who prayed for my mother on Friday. Um, successful surgery. Um, doctor thinks she got everything that there was to get, so we're grateful for that. And uh, my daughter asked me this morning how her grandmother was. I said she's persnickety, so that means that she must be doing well. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. Thank you for praying for us and our family. Um, this prayer request I got early this morning, Betty Delgado called me. Um, Betty is the oldest, I forget, of how many kids. Um, she lost her youngest brother early this morning. And so uh, she now has no brothers here on this earth. I think she had four. Um, so pray for Betty. Um, her brother Carter passed away very early this morning. So um, I'm sure that Betty would benefit from our prayers of encouragement and notes of encouragement to her. So this may not seem like a good Thanksgiving text, and we're just going right through and are preaching through the book of Luke, but I think there is an element here that, that touches the heart of thankfulness this morning. In much of our time in Luke, we have come acquainted and we've crossed paths with, with people who we have called Pharisees and who the Bible has called Pharisees. We've had to interact with this group of people called the Pharisees, and we've tried to explain who they are, and our text this week clearly gives insight into who they are. In fact, I really thought about making my message title this, You Might Be a Pharisee If. And, uh, but, so as we begin this morning, I just want to talk a little bit about who these guys were, these Pharisees. And I think one of the best ways to understand who a Pharisee was, was to understand just by them, by their name that they chose for themselves. Um, you know, a name says a lot about a group of people. Like, Buckeyes are really good people, right? They're strong people. They support good football teams, that kind of thing, right? Now, if I were to say you're a Wolverine, how many of us would really identify with that this morning? There's a few in this room. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll meet again next Sunday. Um, name, names help to identify, don't they? Names help to identify. Pharisee, the very word meant separated. It meant separated. And, and not in a good way. They, they felt that they were better than everybody. And, and we might get the idea that, that these were the very rich elite. But before you get that in your mind, some Pharisees were not wealthy at all. Most Pharisees were middle class people in Jewish society. They, they're people that you and I could identify with. We would be all in that same spending category probably if we had been back alive back then. So they weren't the rich elite. They weren't just snobs. But they saw themselves as better than everybody else. They were separated. They had a strong emphasis on what I would call personal piety. You know what that is? Personal piety they basically thought they were holier than everybody else, and they conducted themselves in a way that they let everybody know that they were holier than everybody else. They viewed the Old Testament as inspired by God. We would agree with them on that. 
They viewed the Old Testament as inspired by God, but they also gave equal authority to the rules that they had developed over the years. So, so in their mind, there was Scripture, and what God had to say, that's great, but also what we have to say is just as important. Sound like the world that we live in today? You know, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, Bible is great, but what we have to say is just as important. You can walk into many a church today and, and find that being propagated right now in American pulpits and pulpits around the world. They generally, generally were men who trusted in their own righteousness. They, they were a group of people who believed that they were good enough to please God. Now, you might be sitting here and you hear that and you're like, well, they're a bunch of idiots, but there are many of us, and I would maintain that all of us, before we, before we were rescued by Christ, we all believed that our righteousness was good enough. So in many ways, we understand what it's like to be a Pharisee. We, we all get it, what it means to be a Pharisee, and sadly, there are some of those in this room who have been rescued by God's grace who still like to live like Pharisees. How do I know this? Because in my own heart, I can find Phariseeism. I know it's there. This idea that, that I can do better, that I can be better than others, that I can live to a higher standard than others. But this idea of trusting in their own self-righteousness got them into some serious trouble with Jesus. And early on in Jesus' ministry, in fact, if you're in Luke 16, I know we haven't even read the text yet, I want you to turn back to a verse in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, early on in Jesus' ministry, when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus literally calls out the Pharisees early on. And this, this sets, a, if you will, the precedent for the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees going forward. But early on in the, in the message of the parable, or, on, or the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching... And he says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The hope was, for many people, was that Jesus was going to come and that the law would no longer, they wouldn't have to be accountable to that law, that pesky law, that law that's always pointing out where I'm doing something wrong. And Jesus said, no, I'm not here to do away with that. I'm here to fulfill it. I am here to do something that none of you could ever do, and that is I'm here to keep it completely. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot, the smallest little marks in the Hebrew language, punctuation marks, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Here's, here's the news this morning that you need to know. The law is still very important. And you and I, you and I are going to be held accountable for our keeping of the law. That's bad news, isn't it? Because none of us can keep it. Good news is Jesus died as the one who kept the law fully and his righteousness can be put to our account. That's the good news. Want something to be thankful for this morning? Be thankful that Jesus kept the law. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Uh-oh. What did I just tell you about the Pharisees? 
They, they viewed themselves as way up here in keeping the law, and their righteousness was way up here. And here's what Jesus is saying to them and saying to us. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of a Pharisee, you have no hope of heaven. No hope. That was a declaration that the Pharisees absolutely hated. And as we come to Luke chapter 16 this morning, the Pharisees have been slowly but surely turning up the heat on Jesus. They have, they have been following him. They've been dogging him. They're, they're looking to find a reason to, to put him on trial and, and to, to wipe him out because their only hope in their mind is we've got to neutralize this threat because in their minds, he was a great threat to their whole system, their whole system of works. And, and let's understand something this morning. Jesus is still a threat to the system of works. He is. The gospel is a threat to the system of works. And, 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 a, and a true understanding of the word should, should only magnify that for us. In chapter 15, we saw three parables. And they were all about lost things. Remember that? And, 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 and on, at the end of those parables... At the end of those parables, Jesus basically comes to, to this, this change, if you will, where he goes from preaching these three parables to giving a parable to his disciples. Now, the purpose of those three parables in Luke chapter 15 was to address the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees at the beginning of chapter 15 were all over Jesus because Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. If you were a tax collector, did you know that you were scum of the earth in this time? You were reminded of it every day. When you collected taxes from people, you were reminded, you no good, dirty, scum-sucking. You knew you were scum of the earth, didn't you? If you were a sinner during this time, you knew you were a sinner, right? The one group that didn't know they were sinners and beyond hope and, and, and without, without the righteousness of Christ was the Pharisees. They didn't know that they were sinners, and yet they were just as much sinners, if not more, than the tax collectors and the sinners. And so Jesus tells three parables about being lost, and at the end of these three parables, the, the Pharisees didn't get it. They didn't get it. And so Jesus then, at the beginning of chapter 16, preaches to his disciples this, this parable about money. And basically he says this, to some of what we covered last week, you take, as my followers, you take the world's wealth, you take the world's money, you take the world's possessions, and you use them for the sake of the kingdom. Be wise and use those for the sake of the kingdom. And that's where we find the Pharisees' response now in our text this morning, verses 14 through 17. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. What choice did they have? I mean, think about it. If you're a Pharisee, and you have been eavesdropping on Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, you know, the world's money is just that. It's the world's money. It's not going to last forever. You take the world's money, and you use it for the sake of my kingdom. If you're a Pharisee, what do you do with that but just say, that's stupid. That's dumb. Jesus addresses them in verse 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, 
For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of John is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then we're going to add verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, these verses may not seem to all fit together. Give me a few minutes, and I think it'll make sense to us by the time we come to the end. So, this morning, I just want to be clear with you what the point of this whole text is. I want to be clear with you what I think God's intention is in this. And what my purpose is in in bringing it to bear this morning. Number one, chances are in this room, there are people who are trusting in their own self-righteousness to earn favor with God. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what many of us in this room, would you agree with me? That was your testimony. I was trusting in my own righteousness before before Christ broke me and, 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 and showed me that my righteousness wasn't good enough. That's my testimony. But it's my prayer that those in this room that hear the word today and are trusting in your own unrighteousness will abandon that kind of thinking because that kind of thinking will damn your soul to hell. It will. The the belief that your righteousness is good enough to buy favor with God, all that's going to do is damn your soul to hell. Secondly, the point in preaching this this morning is this, as I mentioned before, that we who are the followers of Jesus, we tend to kind of revert back to pharisaical ways. We do. We tend to kind of revert back to it, that same manner of living as the self-righteous Pharisees. We think think that by our system, our code, which may be different than this code, we think that just by living by our little code and doing the things that we do, that that we're going to be better Christians than other people. And I want to tell you, that is a horrible prison to live in. It's a horrible prison to live in. And so, this morning, as we look at this text of Scripture, I hope that we can look at it and first identify who the Pharisees are and then see at the end. I mean, there is a thankfulness element to this at the end of this message. But who are the Pharisees? Number number one, the Pharisees, according to verse 14, they were those who loved money. The, the Greek adjective here where it talks about lovers of money basically means this. They were fond of silver. They, they loved coin. They had a strong desire to get more of it. And they would do anything to get their needs met by money. And you think about it. They appeared to be very righteous. Pharisees would show up on Sunday. They'd be the ones who would lead in worship. They'd be the ones who were really worshiping God. They would put on a good exterior, but inside they had this insatiable greed of wanting things. And honestly, when you love money so much, when you love things so much, it doesn't allow you to love God or to love others. And those are the two great commands, are they not? If, if you're in love with your money, if you're in love with your things so much, you won't love others. How bad was it with the Pharisees? In Luke chapter 20, Luke records this, Jesus is talking to, to religious leaders, and he specifically says to the scribes, of which some of the scribes were Pharisees, he says to them, he says, your greed has led you to devour widows' houses. Think about it. They were so 
insatiable in their desire for money that they literally took advantage of sweet little old ladies. Now, who would do that? Pharisees would. Which flies in the face of something we saw in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus reminded us our life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. Think with me about all the things that you possess. You making a list in your mind of all the things you possess? How many of you got a house? How many of you got cars? How many of you got retirement? How many of you got a bank account? What's left of it, right? How many of you got Christmas credit card bills already? Don't, don't answer that. All right. The things that you possess, the things that you possess, some of you have women, you have beautiful jewelry. Some of you got great clothes. Some of you, some of you got really cool things, like, like you got great toys. Some of you got like ATVs and boats and motorcycles and all this stuff. Guess what? That, that's not your life. That's not your life. That, that, isn't, that isn't who you are. When, when you're talking to somebody or, or when, you're, when you're meeting with your doctor and your doctor tells you you've got the C word, do all those things matter? Do those things matter? No. When, when, when you find out that, that because, of, because of an election or, or whoever's controlling the, the Fed, that all of a sudden you've lost half of your retirement just because of some politician somewhere, do those things really matter as to who you are? No. And so Jesus says this, greed makes it all about my life, and it makes money and possessions my life, and it totally robs from what we're called to do. Our life for the believer is hidden in Christ, and it's to be for his glory. And so immediately Luke identifies here who Pharisees are, number one. They're lovers of something that isn't Jesus, basically, is what he's saying here. They love money. Secondly, we see this. Not only are Pharisees those who love money, Pharisees are those who scoff at what Jesus says. Do you see it there in verse 14? So, so Jesus tells his disciples, he's preaching a message to his disciples, and he basically says this, money isn't as important as you think it is. Money should be used for this purpose. And in the Pharisees, you can just get this picture, self-righteously standing on the outside, maybe stroking their big Pharisee beards and, and checking the tassels on their Pharisee robes and going like this. And then when Jesus gets done, they, they literally, they ridiculed him. They scoffed him. They, they audibly scoffed him. They said, what you have to say is stupid. That's just foolish thinking. That's just wrong. You see, when a Pharisee hears something from Jesus that, they, that, that convicts them or that they choose not to believe, the only solution that they have is to say, that's silly, that doesn't apply. Now, before you judge the Pharisees, how many times in your life have you had somebody open the Word of God to you, or you read the Word of God, or you sat in a service where the Word of God was preached, and you're like, that's stupid, that doesn't apply. That's the heart of a Pharisee. Notice the attention is on Jesus and not on His words. They, they ridiculed Him. They didn't ridicule the things that He said. Because here's the thing. 
you can't call into question the words of Jesus. They're, they're, they're true, they're holy, they're pure. They, they call him into question. And let's understand something here this morning. With our Pharisee hearts, we don't get to pick and choose what we will receive as truth. God says that his word is truth and you either take it or you leave it. We don't get to pick and choose what is truth. And when you and I choose not to receive the word of God, we're no different than the Pharisees in scoffing him. So Pharisees love their money. They scoff the words of Jesus. Thirdly, Pharisees are those who look to justify themselves. Parents, you can relate to this. I don't know why kids are dumb. But they are. Every parent says what? Just go ahead. We're a family. We can be honest here. Kids are dumb. Amen? Kids do dumb things. Amen? It's because their parents have done dumb things. But, but you'll understand this. You'll understand this idea of justifying themselves. How many of you have caught your kids doing something that you directly told them not to do? Has it ever happened to you? And they always have a good reason, right? In their minds, it's a good reason, right? I know you told me not to do this, but, but, and, it's, and, and, and all of a sudden, they turn into Clarence Darrow, the great attorney of all time, and they start pleading their case with you. And before you know it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Wait a minute, I told you no. That's what Pharisees did. Because let's understand this. Pharisees truly believe that their righteousness is good enough. They don't need to be any more righteous than they already are. So when a Pharisee does something, they have no choice but to justify and try to prove that what they did was the right thing. They have to make themselves look right before men. Do you see it there? You are those who justify yourselves before men. Okay? So, so I have to defend my actions. You may not think that was the right thing to do, but I'm, you may not know this. I'm a Pharisee. And what I do is I do the right thing. And my, my rightness is good enough. And let me explain to you and help you to understand why I am right so that you will see why I am right. They have to make themselves right. And this morning, if you're trusting in your self-righteousness, not only are you trying to convince God that your self-righteousness is enough, but you're trying to convince your fellow man that your self-righteousness is enough. That's what Pharisees do. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 3, and, and, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this just totally stabs that line of thinking right through the heart. In, in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Understand what he's saying here. If you could keep all the law, you couldn't be justified. He says this, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's understand something here this morning. No flesh will be justified by doing the right thing. The thing is, you can't do the right thing in the right way at the right time, always with 100% accuracy. 
Isaiah tells us that all our righteousness amounts to a pile of filthy rags. And let's understand something this morning. There is no righteousness that you and I can, can use to please God unless it comes first to us through faith. What do I mean by that? Way back in the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4, he said this, the just, the ones who are righteous, they'll live by what? Their good works? The just will live by what? Faith. What was Habakkuk saying? What, what was it that Paul repeated when he wrote those words? What is, it that, what is it that we need to understand? That we have to go from a view of trusting in our own self-effort to embrace by faith what Christ has accomplished for us. The only way that we're going to please God is to take Christ's perfect life and His righteousness and have it appropriated to us. And we have to receive that by faith. Sadly, there are people in this room who are very frustrated with their life, and one of your greatest frustrations is, is that you can't be good enough. And until you come to that realization that you can't be good enough, you can't be freed to understand this, that Christ was good enough, and that His death and His righteousness put to your account frees you from having to be good enough. I'm not saying this in a like, I can go out and sin kind of way, but, but here's something really freeing for me. I don't have to be good enough anymore. Christ was. Christ is. And His righteousness is good with the Father, and I don't have to have my righteousness brought before the Father for Him to just flick it aside. Closely tied to this idea of justifying themselves is that Pharisees always have to have the approval of man. Look, he says, you justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. There are people in this room, and it's partly human nature, I get it, but we really care what others think about us. You know who you are. I know who I am. We really care about what other people think about us. And so, in a Pharisee's eyes, people and the need for their approval and their recognition and their acceptance is huge in their minds. It's so huge that the need for approval and acceptance by God becomes very small. Let me put it to you bluntly this morning. If you care more about what your family thinks about you, what your co-workers think about you, more than what God thinks about you, you're a Pharisee. That hurts, doesn't it? But let's be honest, in the end, does it really matter what your husband or your wife thinks of you? Does it really matter what your co-worker thinks of you? Does it really matter what your neighbor thinks of you? Or does it matter what, what God thinks of you and what He knows to be true about you? What really matters, church? Pharisees live for the accolades and the praise of their fellow men. A disciple lives for his master, and he performs for an audience of one. Do you know what it means to perform for an audience of one? Because I think most of us live our lives performing for an audience of the people that are around us. To perform for an audience of one means it doesn't matter whether I make everybody else around me happy. It's a, have, I, have I pleased the Father? Have I pleased the Father? And here's the thing. If you live for the audience of one, if you live for the glory of the one, you'll take care of all these other things here on earth.
Pharisees live a double life. Fifthly, notice, notice what Jesus says. You justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What's he implying there? What's he implying there? Well, he's implying that, that there's, there's two lives a Pharisee leads. There's two lives that a Pharisee leads. He, live, he lives this external life. A Pharisee would do really well in an American church on a Sunday morning. You know that? If we could have teleport a group of Pharisees to, to the year 2021 and bring them to Johnstown, a Pharisee could walk in here and fit right in, okay? We'd have to change his outfit. He couldn't wear the outfit with the robe and the tassels, okay? But we, put him, but we camouflage his outfit a little bit and we bring him in here. A Pharisee would just pass really easy in here this morning. You know why? Because you'd walk up to him and say, how you doing, Brother Andy? And he'd be like, I'm doing great. Just love Jesus. It's so great to be here this morning. He knows all the words to say. He knows all the actions to do in front of other people. And all that do, all that is, is a veneer. You know what a veneer is, right? Years ago, we thought, my wife and I thought, we had found this really good deal on this dresser. You know, solid wood, all this wonderful stuff. And if it's older, it's better, right? I was expecting amens from the corner of the room where all our older people are sitting. <laughs> if it's older, it's better, right? All this wonderful old wood, only to find out the first time that we let water spill on it that it was not all solid hardwood. It was just veneer. And once the veneer starts to peel, what happens? You ain't stopping it, are you? You're not stopping it. Pharisees were like a cheap piece of furniture. They had all the stuff on the outside. They had the veneer. It looked really good. But once that veneer starts peeling back, you find out they're just nothing but junk wood. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23. They're like whitewashed tombs. They look respectable on the outside, but inwardly they're full of dead men's bones. And notice what Jesus says to them. In verse 15, God knows your heart. God knows your heart. This morning, if you're a Pharisee sitting here thinking you have it hidden from everybody else, you can hide it. You can hide it from your fellow man. You can hide it from your family. You can hide it from your friends. You can hide it from your neighbors. You can hide it from your coworkers. But you cannot hide your stinky, dead, rotting heart from God. You can't hide it. God goes further to say this. Look at the end of verse 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That word abomination is an interesting word. When our kids were little and they would tell lies, we used to quote the proverb too and we used to make them say it. They hated it. Lying lips are what? An abomination. Lying lips are what? An abomination. Do you know what an abomination is? An abomination is literally, it is a stench in the nose of God. And let's understand this. Not only are lying lips an abomination, but lives that are lived as lies are an abomination to God. And that's what Pharisees did. They lived a lie. But perhaps the worst thing that Pharisees did was the last thing. And we find that in verses 16 and 17. And that is, they rejected the gospel. 
Now, you're not going to find gospel in verses 16, 17, and 18, but you're going to find it here in this principle. They rejected the good news. They were actively rejecting the good news. So Jesus said this, the law and the prophets were until John, okay? Law and prophets is just a nice way of saying the Old Testament, okay? You can, you can say all the books, you know, what Moses wrote, what all the prophets wrote, all the history books, all of that, those are law and prophets. And what Jesus is saying is all throughout all of our history here, all throughout the history of man, we, we've had the law and the prophets, and they were until John. And then he said, then John came on, and since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, Okay, what happened when John the Baptist came on the scene? He is the transition from the law and the prophets to Jesus in, in the New Testament, right? He's the last Old Testament prophet, and he's the first, if you will, evangelist of the New Testament. John kind of was that transition. And from the point that John came and he started to preach the good news, he prepared the way for who to come and really proclaim the good news? Jesus himself, right? And so now Jesus is here proclaiming the gospel, and notice what Jesus says about it, and everyone forces his way into it. I say, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Well, what Jesus is saying this, there are some, when I'm preaching the good news, who are forcefully doing it. They're violently denying themselves, they're picking up their crosses, and they're following me. That's what he means by that. Guess who wasn't violently denying themselves, picking up their crosses, and following Jesus? Tax collectors were, weren't they? Matthew? Matthew left his booth. We're going to see in just a couple chapters that Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man who was a tax collector, he's doing it. We know sinners' lives are being changed. Guess whose lives are not being changed, who are not, who are not pursuing violently the call of Jesus to follow him? Guess who aren't? Pharisees. Because after all, when you're as righteous as I am, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that. And notice what it says in verse 17. The law isn't going anywhere. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, the Pharisees probably initially were like, you know what? He's right. The law is paramount. He finally got something right in talking to us here. But then Jesus adds on verse 18. Now, we're just going to talk about it briefly. I'm just going to tell you this. We're not going to touch totally on this. Next week, I intend to just camp on verse 18 and deal with the subject of divorce because I think it's that important that we deal with it. And here's why. I think the church has stigmatized divorce. We've treated divorced people like they're like the red-letter people of our church. But I also think, too, that we don't have an understanding of what, what God really intends with marriage and divorce, because we don't take marriage as seriously as God wants us to. So next week, we're going to deal with that. But, but let me help you to understand why Jesus puts this verse right here at the end of that. Notice what it says in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Like, so the Pharisees are listening to that, and they're like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that sounds right, until they start to really evaluate this. They said that they upheld the law, but they upheld the law only in areas of the law that they found convenient for them. This area of divorce was not convenient for a Pharisee, and here's why. 
They took the teaching of Moses, which we'll look at next week in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and they basically made it of no effect. And they basically interpreted the law this way. Moses said this, if your wife is unclean, and we'll, we'll understand what that means next week, but basically had to do with sexual sin. If your wife was, was, was sinning sexually in a, in a way that, that, that was just considered abomination by God, you could put her away and divorce her. Well, the Pharisees took that. Remember, they believed that Old Testament law, but also verbal tradition was just as important, right? So here is their verbal tradition, because after all, no Pharisee should ever be unhappy, should he? And sometimes wives make us unhappy, amen, men? Where are you, men? Not even on, not even on the front rows. I'm on my own. You're in trouble, PD. Honestly, you ever get unhappy with your spouse? Your spouse ever do something that really ticks you off? Guess what? Pharisees had marriages too, and their wives ticked them off. And here's what they did with the law. Well, unclean doesn't necessarily mean sexual. Unclean means just about anything that my wife does that I don't like. And guess what? I don't like the way that she burns my toast every morning. Divorced. And by the way, she's starting to show her age. I'll find a younger Pharisee wife. And that's how they interpreted the law. And folks, when you play fast and loose with God's law, you're saying you hate his gospel. And that's what Pharisees did. You see, the law isn't a bad thing. It's God's holiness on display. <laughs> it's God's holiness codified for us so that we understand just how holy he is and how unholy we are. And the Pharisees didn't understand that, that God's law was there to point them to Jesus. They didn't understand that Jesus, the one right there with them, was there offering to them his holiness and his righteousness for, for their own wickedness. The law, if you will, is a mirror that's held up to us and it reveals the ugliness of our hearts. And here Jesus was holding up a mirror specifically on this sin of divorce. And, and there would make no mistake in the audience, there were Pharisees who had just willy-nilly put their wives away and divorced them because they needed a new model. They needed an upgrade. And they found a reason in the law, a little loophole. And that's probably the worst thing that you can use to describe a Pharisee. Pharisees are always looking for a loophole. They're always looking for a way to get around what God says. They're always looking for a way to justify their actions. So this morning, understand this. Personal righteousness isn't enough to please a holy God. You can't be good enough. Say it with me. I can't be good enough. Are you sure? Say it again. I can't be good enough. But Jesus was, and he is. Pharisees proudly believe that they can please God with their outward displays of righteousness. But I mentioned at the beginning that there are many of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, and, and if we're just really honest with ourselves, we kind of slide back into pharisaical ways. We do. We slide back into Phariseeism because, after all, Phariseeism is kind of cool because it puts the emphasis on me and what I can do, right? 
It makes me the center of attention. Pharisaical living isn't genuine Christianity. I got news for you. <laughs> By God's grace, you don't have to put on a show and, and, and you don't have to demonstrate your righteousness anymore for man's approval. And that's something we can be thankful for. Because you think about this. Because, because this morning, those of you in this room who have been rescued by God's grace, you have been rescued from being a Pharisee. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You've been rescued from being a Pharisee. And so you've got some things that you can be thankful for. I've got some things I can be thankful for. I can be thankful that I no longer have to love myself. And I can be thankful that I no longer have to love my money or my possessions, that I can love someone who is far more satisfying, who's going to last far longer than my money. I can be thankful this morning that I don't have to scoff at Jesus' words. I can be thankful that I can trust his words as true and I can believe them and follow them. I can really be thankful this morning that I don't have to justify my actions to my fellow man. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have to live rightly and in right relationship with others, but, but I don't have to justify myself. I don't have to demonstrate that I'm more righteous than you, that God's going to pick me before he picks you. Guess what? None of us deserve to be picked, and he picked a lot of us, didn't he? And so I don't have to live for the approval of man anymore. I live for an audience of one. I live for his approval. I don't have to be approved by, by you, and you don't have to be approved by me. And praise God, we don't have to live a double life anymore. One of the most freeing things to me as I get older, and as I think I'm growing in my faith, I hope it's growth in my faith, is that I realize this. Just like you're growing in your sanctification and I'm growing in my sanctification, there are going to be times when I don't get it right. Anybody else in this room? Anybody else in this room that way? And you know what? The beauty of a church is I don't have to hide it from you anymore. And you don't have to hide it from me. You know why? Because that's why he puts us together, to be that sanctifying influence on one another, to pray for one another, to weep when we weep. Weeping over when we weep, we usually just think about that with death. Sometimes we weep the most whenever we sin, don't we? We don't have to live double lives anymore. We have the grace to live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And, and, and the older I get as a believer... And I, you might say, well, that sounds rather jaded. I don't think so. Here's what I've come to know. You're going to sin against me, and I'm going to sin against you. Is that true? It's going to happen. And, and it's not up to me to have to fix that. Yeah, there's some things I need to do to, to be restored, but Christ fixed that with his righteousness, didn't he? And so... This morning, if you're a Pharisee, today is the day to take off the robe of Pharisaism and embrace the righteousness of Christ. And those of us who are, who are recovering Pharisees, if you put it that way, recovering Pharisees, we don't have to do that stuff anymore. 
we don't have to be like the guys that we just read about here because of God's grace. Father, I'm so thankful that it's not up to me to be righteous enough because I couldn't do it. I'm so grateful that Christ is the righteous one and that through his work we can be justified and made right with you, our Father. May we revel in that this week, this week of Thanksgiving. May, may we not let Thanksgiving come and go without thanking you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen.